Just a reminder, if you uh, want to keep your kids in here, you are more than welcome to do that. We will be happy to tolerate any noises that they make, all right? So don't feel pressure if you want to keep them in here. Uh, my name is Doug, and I'm the campus pastor at East. It's a joy to be able to worship with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them out and open them up to Acts chapter 19. As a church, we are sort of just walking through the book of Acts, and we've been doing that um, last uh, year or so now, I suppose. And so Acts chapter 19, I'd invite you to turn there. The words will be on the screen. I'll read it here at the beginning. Um, but then uh, you'll be just greatly helped if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. I think there's some in the, the uh, chair rack ahead of you. Um, as we've been walking through the, the book of Acts, what we've seen is that there is uh, the, the author of Acts, Luke, takes a unique focus on the cities that Paul and his crew enter into as they journey along. And as he enters into these cities, we see that there's, each city sort of possesses a mix of both opportunity, um, there, there is strategic potential that it exists in each of these contexts, but also we see that there is also opposition, that people don't necessarily organize a welcome party for Paul and his partners as he enters into the city. So each city possesses a, a mixture of opportunity and opposition. And we'll see the exact same thing happen as we um, continue and look at sort of what takes place as Paul finds himself in the city of Ephesus. And so for this morning's passage, we're gonna look specifically at Acts chapter 19, verses eight through 20. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and um, then we will we'll dive right in. Starting in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the, in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom that was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were, now, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, just as we have um, your word before us this morning open, and as we look at it and consider it, Lord, we ask that your spirit just make himself known in this place, Lord. I pray that you'd speak by the power of your spirit through your word to your people, and that you would embolden us um, to be precisely the type of people that you have made us to be. Lord, I pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, just as we consider it together, Lord, that you would use it to encourage 
Lord, to comfort, Lord, to challenge and convict. Lord, just have your way with us this morning through your word. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I'm originally from Dubuque. Um, I've been living in Iowa City now for 23 years. And Dubuque, if you have any knowledge of Dubuque, it's about an hour and a half north of here. It's a river town. It's um, sort of the definition of a blue-collar town. Downtown is filled with, well, it was when I was growing up, filled with one factory after another. If you were to look at the skyline, it would be littered with, with smoke coming from the factories or steeples from the Catholic churches. That was sort of what our downtown looked like if you just looked at it. It was a, a gritty town, not really a destination place when I was growing up. Um, over the years, though, it's been remarkable how the community, how the city has really transformed. Like I said, I've been here for 23, now, and every time, 23 years now, and every time I go back, I see something new. It's remarkable at how much the city has really transformed. Many, many reasons contributed to this transformation. There was a, a mayor who had a unique vision for what the city could be. Um, there are policies that were in place to sort of draw folks um, to the community. But of all the things that, that contribute towards its transformation, perhaps the most significant is Dubuque's unique ability to capture the power of the river. And when I say capture the power of the river, I don't mean like and use it for energy purposes. I mean, maybe they do that. I don't, I don't necessarily know. But it's one of the unique river towns that actually says, hey, Let's leverage the beauty of the river for our gain. And so if you go there, you will find a beautiful sort of walkway out by the river. You'll see a museum that's designed to sort of showcase the river. Certainly there's no shortage of casinos and ways to you know, put money back into the city's pockets, so to speak. Um, but really what was significant in allowing the city of Dubuque to undergo this transformation was its ability to utilize the power of the river to its advantage. It tapped into the, the beauty and the power of the river. What we're gonna see this morning as we consider what sort of Paul's experience in Ephesus and really throughout his journey is that, that we're gonna see communities, cities that undergo a transformation as well. And Ephesus is no, is, is no exception to that. This is a community, this is a city that, that is transformed in some way, but not by the power of the river, but rather by the power of the Lord himself. And so as we consider, what does the transformation, my hope would be that as, as you sit in here this morning, that every one of us, regardless of what city, community, or neighborhood we call home, that we likewise would want to see transformation take place, specifically transformation for the sake of Jesus. So our look this morning in verses 8 to 20 is going to give us some idea of what this transformation requires. And what we'll see essentially is that God transforms this city through his word by the power of his spirit. That's essentially what he does. And so as we look at it first, the, the really sort of two points, but the second point has multiple subpoints. This is my sneaky way of getting a six-point sermon into two points, all right? The first point is this. I want us to consider together as we look at these verses the possibility of real transformation. One of the keys to Dubuque's transformation is in 2005, they hired a mayor who had a vision for what Dubuque could be. The possibility of transformation. Ephesus, we were introduced to the city last week. Paul's time and ministry in Ephesus is unique for a variety of reasons. Of all the cities he visited, he stayed the longest in this city. 
And we really see a shift of ministry focus from Paul during this time as he spends longer and longer. In Corinth, he was there for a year and six months. In Ephesus, he was there for somewhere between two to three years. And what's unique about this is that if you consider Paul's time in these places continues to grow and extend. I think it goes back to that promise that God made Paul, that he was with him, that his presence was with Paul. With him, And so as a result, Paul is able to sort of persevere even in the face of opposition. Another thing that makes his time in Ephesus unique is really the effect that his ministry has on the city. And we'll see more about what this looks like in the weeks ahead. But you can look at just in our text today and get some idea of how effective Paul's ministry was in the city of Ephesus. In verse 20, it says that the word spread widely. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This really turns into a major movement that God would, would birth out of the city. In verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 10, it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. We really see God's word reaching far and wide through his efforts here at Ephesus. So effective was Paul's ministry that the gospel spread throughout the entire province of Asia, we are told, on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey today. During this time, the churches at Colossae and Laodicea and Heropolis were founded. We learned this in Colossians chapter four. Um, though it couldn't be proven, it, some believe that the seven churches of Revelation that we see in, in uh, chapter two through three of Revelation were actually started during this period. The idea is that ministry for Paul is thriving. Throughout the whole region, people's lives are being transformed by the power of God. Another way of saying it is that this is precisely what, what Paul experiences in Ephesus ought to be precisely what we long to see happen here in our city, in our community, real transformation for the sake of Jesus. Our lives, we, we wanna see it not just in our cities, but also in our lives. There's individuals whose lives in this room have been completely flipped on their heads because they have had an encounter with the living God, the real Jesus. We essentially are a community of real people discovering the real Jesus for ourselves. And the reality is when you do that, your life becomes transformed. Jesus enters in and changes who you are. So that now you become an individual who walks through this world with hope, meaning, and purpose. Jesus offers to dramatically change our lives. Now, if this is all that we knew about Paul and his time in Ephesus, you might conclude, if all you knew that ministry was thriving in Ephesus, you might be tempted to conclude that the conditions were so comfortable, so easy, the table was just so set, the people were so accepting and predisposed, disposed, Disposed, what, why can't I say the word? Dispo, yeah, predisposed, there it is. I forgot the pre in front of it. Disposed, that's not right. Predisposed to the gospel, there you go. Sorry. It's right in my notes, I just can't read it apparently. That they were so predisposed to the gospel, that, that, that it, of course, it's just natural, of course it's gonna thrive. What we find out as we look at the text that that's not simply the case. The table was not set. Look at how he describes his time in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses eight and nine. He says, but as he's writing uh, to the church at Corinth while he's in Ephesus, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. There is an opportunity 
in this city. But then he says, and there are many adversaries. There is, a, there is an amazing opportunity here at Ephesus. And then out of the same sentence, the same breath of his mouth, he says, for there are many adversaries. There was a great opportunity in Ephesus, but it was not as if all the people were instantly willing and ready to hear what he had to say. Because at the same time, we see that Paul faced tremendous opposition, tremendous resistance to his message. And this, this is one of the reasons why we can take heart this morning. This is pre precisely the environment that God chooses to work. Where there is opportunity and potential, but yet you look at it at the surface and you see opposition and this doesn't make sense. This is precisely the type of environment that God chooses to flex his muscles in. Not a setting of comfort and ease where it is obvious, but one in where you look at and you say, you know what? That is unexplainable apart from the hand of God. And that's precisely the type of environment that God chooses to work in. I mean, if you just consider sort of this city in and of itself, it was considered sort of the treasure house of the Roman province of Asia. Its geographic location would have made it a strategic location for trade. As a result, there was loads of wealth moving into the city on a regular basis, flowing through the city, lots of prosperity, lots of individuals who were successful, lots of money in this place. It was resourceful and it had potential. However, there was also a darker side to the city of Ephesus. There was a less savory side. Ephesus was also home to the temple of, of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple that according to ruins was 239 feet wide, 418 feet long. So it's four times the size of the Pantheon that we saw in Athens. It was a commercial center. Ephesus was leading city in the province of Asia. It was as a result home, this temple of Artemis was home to a large criminal population. Due to the fact that if you made your way into the temple of Diana, the Artemis, you, you, you possessed the right of asylum. And so criminals flocked to the area to, to, to be sort of without, outside of the reach of the arms uh, of the law's arm. It was a city that was full of magic. The occult thrived. It was a pagan city. There was a darker side to Ephesus. And it was in this environment that God launches Paul a man whose life had been radically transformed by Jesus to preach the gospel. Nothing could seem more ridiculous. Nothing from, from a human perspective could seem more hopeless. But it was precisely in these conditions that God decided to start something. That God chose to work. Now, if you just scan sort of your life, and my guess is each one of us here could identify some aspect, some area of our life where we look at it and we think, there is no way. There's no way God can change that. There's no way this person will ever change. There's no way this relationship will ever be made right. There's no way that justice will ever be experienced. There's no way that healing will ever come. If you can identify a place like that in your life, the good news for us this morning, it is, is precisely areas like that that God decides to show up and to flex his muscles. 
This is a God who chooses the way of weakness so that we can, as his people, learn to trust in the power of his name. That's how he chooses to work. It's good news for us. So as you look at where Paul is in the city of, of Ephesus, you have to remember that even though there's, there's, there's darkness in the city, there's still, if God's there, tremendous possibility. So what's the plan? How does the transformation happen? Well, the first thing we see in 8 to 10 is that through the proclamation of the word. Paul does what he does when he moves into almost every other city we've seen so far. He goes immediately to the synagogue, a place where he thinks he's gonna have an ear, some people who can understand, have some sort of fluency with the Bible and things of God. This is a typical pattern we see over and over again. And he begins persuading and reasoning with the Jewish audience. But much like we saw in Corinth, so here in Ephesus, the Jews reject Paul's message. He sees little success in the synagogue, so Paul quickly becomes a target told that a group of stubborn in their unbelief maligned themselves against Paul and what he has to say. And so his response is he takes his disciples, those who, who do receive what he has to say, and he sort of moves along. He moves along. We've seen this already from him before. And I think it's a good reminder for us that there is a time when we ought to move along as well. There can be individuals that we are speaking God's word into their life on a regular basis and they want nothing to do with it. Now, it doesn't mean you, you, you eliminate the relationship. It doesn't mean you stop proclaiming the word, but it does mean maybe, maybe you might see more fruit somewhere else with somebody who is receptive to the word. Now, if you, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are called to love our neighbors. And, and, and if we love somebody who has rejected what we have to say, if we effectively love them, the door is always gonna be open, right? For them to, to, to hear what we have to say. The relationship will always be there for, as far as we're concerned. But in terms of where we put our effort and our energy, I think there just comes a time sometimes we have to move along, right? It says in verse nine that he moves into, from the synagogue, he goes on to a school, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now this time, all education the Roman Empire would have, in antiquity, would have been privately funded. Tyrannus either owned the hall or was the primary lecturer of the hall that was there. And he agreed to an arrangement with Paul to give him ability to use the hall. Now, secondary sources tell us that the time that Paul was lecturing in the hall was between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. What that tells us is that if he was there from 11 to 4, the, the way sort of the, the work week would have worked back then is that the, the sort of the markets and business was running up until about 11 o'clock. And then at 11 o'clock, everybody took a lunch and a nap on some level, took care of business. Sounds pretty good, right? It was the hottest time of day. And so everything sort of stopped at 11. And then at 4 o'clock, it picked back up. Marketplace was back open. People were back into work doing their thing. So here was an opportunity that Paul saw everybody's going to be off. This is a great time to open up the hall and let folks come in and hear God's word. He seized the opportunity. While others rested, Christians were told for two years, redeem their time by learning Christ together. It would have been a fool's effort for Paul to preach at nine in the morning or 5 p.m. because everybody would have been at work. But here Paul is. Now remember, Paul is a tent maker. 
Paul has a job. He, he is supporting himself throughout this time. So odds are Paul was spending the morning working, earning money, lecturing for hours during the day, and then likely working as well in the evening. Here's an individual who's putting a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of effort into, into seeing God do something. He's taking advantage of the opportunity that the Lord has given him. And verse 10 says he's there for two years. He's got a great arrangement. It's working out well as he prioritizes the proclamation of the word. This preaching God's word for Paul is essential. And we've seen it, I feel like a broken record. Week after week after week after week, one of my points is likely gonna be proclamation of the word of God. How does the gospel transform our city? How does it spread across the world? How does he transform our lives? By speaking God's word. He's called us as the church to make disciples. One of the primary ways we do that is by speaking God's word. This is a central aspect to his ministry. Yes, there's been opposition. Sometimes there's mixed results. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but Paul is faithful. He continues to speak the word. You just look at this text and you see it over and over again in verse eight. He spoke boldly about the kingdom of God. It's connecting the dots to scripture with these individuals. Verse nine, he's reasoning daily with the disciples. Verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because it was proclaimed. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All throughout this passage, we see a central focus to Paul's strategy for real transformation is proclamation of God's word. It's a central idea. However, it's not the only idea. In between these bookends of God's word prevailing and being proclaimed, we have one of the most unusual stories in the book of Acts. So unusual. It's actually a very funny scene. I'm surprised nobody laughed when I read it. It's hilarious. Luke doesn't include it because he wants to get a laugh from us. He includes it, one, because it happened, and two, because it teaches us another important lesson about how real transformation takes place. It happens, his work happens only as his word is proclaimed by the power of his spirit. In between the bookends of the passage is a story that is all about the manifestation of God's power. In verse 11, it says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Our author Luke wants us to be absolutely sure that it is God who is the one doing the work. And these miracles throughout the book of Acts, they serve to sort of validate or confirm the message and the messengers of God as well. But also, while that's true, they also reveal the nearness of God himself, the presence of God with his people. Luke is explicit, while the work was great, it was not the work of Paul, but the work of God himself. In verse 12, it says, so that so crazy was the power that was coming out of this man that God was using at the time that handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were being carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. While some of the miracles, most of the miracles that we'd seen up to this point have been sort of come in direct contact with Paul here, it's sort of, it's indirect, it's unusual. Articles of, of clothing that are being taken from Paul, borrowed from Paul, and then applied to the ill so that they can be released of their demons and freed of whatever it is that makes them sick. Now, this was not, be sure of it, a sort of sh shift in strategy on Paul's part. 
okay? For, for Paul, this was, this was not his opportunity. He wasn't selling items like maybe we see in our culture today. Individuals say, hey, buy this. And you know, it's a means of sort of financial gain for the individual, promising you know, that these things will be used for healing. This wasn't Paul initiating this. He wasn't making money from this. Rather, his followers were borrowing it and in power, God was using it. We don't see Paul advocating in his letters to churches later that they start up a handkerchief ministry. When you walked in today, this morning, if you're new at Parkview East, we're so glad that you're here, but you're not gonna find a booth where you can buy or sell or touch one of my hankies, okay? (laughs) Just say, I'm just gonna say be weird, all right? I think we all know that. This This is not... This is not prescriptive. He's not commanding us to do this. It's a description of how God chose to work in a very unique way at a very unique time. But it is true. This really did happen. It appears to be a unique manifestation of God's power, but it's a manifestation just the same. These miracles that we, that we hear and that we see happening in the book of Acts are evidence, more than anything, that God has come to town. And there were no longer limits. There were no longer boundaries of what might be. And it's hard for many of us to grasp, and that's normal. Why? Because we are a people who are very in tune with our limitations, We are a limited people. So when we read a story that reveals that all of a sudden those limits are being pushed, you know, our question marks can come off. We can wonder what is going on here? Is this true? Is this real? The good news of this is it it reminds us that while we are a limited people, we serve a God who knows no limits. There are no limits. There are no boundaries over what God can do. And when God, this great limitless one, comes to town, when the Almighty moves in, suddenly our limits change. When he gives himself freely to his people, when he pours out his spirit, which bring about his presence and his power, our limits change. And our very lives become evidence of God's power at work. You know, one of the greatest things that we can do as a church, as a people, is to dream. What would it look like? What would it look like if God uniquely poured out his power on us as a people? I don't know about you, but one of my lifelong dreams is to be a part of something that is apart from God, totally unexplainable, that you look at and you think, there's no way that should happen. And that's precisely what God is inviting us to do. He gives himself to us, and there's nothing that limits him. Parkview East, what can be in your life? What possibilities are there for you, your marriage, your family, your workplace, the trajectory of your life, what possibilities might there be for our church and how God might choose to use us today in our community? This is an invitation for us to dream. 
And it's for me one of the most exciting things to do. But here's the deal. While this power we learn can't be limited, neither can it be manufactured or controlled. And we see this in verses 13 through 16. When God's power was manifested, the evil one tried to imitate God's work. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. Some, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name, we're told, of our Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Ephesus at this time would have been full of pagan religion, superstition, magic. The occult would have sort of influenced and integrated its way into different religious expressions of the day. And in a particular group, we're told, the, the seven sons of Sceva, the, the, the Jewish high priest at the time, wanted to cash in on the opportunity. They saw somebody new coming to town, a new name with some new power, a new trick so they tried their attempt to harness or manufacture the power of Jesus to cast out the demon of a possessed man. In verses 15 to 16, we see just how bad of an idea that was for them. In verse 15, it says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? In verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked, and wounded. I mean, this is a sight that if you saw it, you wouldn't forget you saw it, right? It, it's a remarkable scene. It, it teaches us a few things. First of all, the devil has power. The devil is powerful. You know, I think this is a point specifically that Paul wants the church at Ephesus to know, knowing what they're up against. That's why it becomes sort of a theme in his letter to the church at Ephesus. In chapter six, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is, is acutely aware of the power that exists in opposition to Jesus. It also teaches us, don't mess with the devil except in the power of Jesus. Don't play around with the devil. He'll leave you bloody and naked, except in the power of Jesus. And then it also teaches us that the devil, while he's powerful, is also a total loser. A total loser. You might be finding yourself asking yourself, okay, well, this is a weird scenario who won? Who won the fight? And was it the man who overpowered them? I mean, what, what is it, what's happening here? Well, one preacher said it like this. If when you started the fight, you were wearing pants, and at the end of the, at the, end of the fight, you no longer had pants on, you lost, all right? I think, it's, I think it's probably true. What's happening here is that both the demon and the exorcist are on the same side. Satan's kingdom has been divided and will soon collapse. The devil is a complete loser. Sort of the final scene that we see here is the reality of the, the transformation. We see the proclamation of God's word. We see the demonstration of God's power. Finally, we see the transformation of God's people. In verse 17, what's the result of all of this? It says, and this became known, this naked beat down became known throughout the entire area. Residents of Ephesus all learned about it, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. 
Fear fell upon all of them. It's interesting that it was the signs and wonders, that it isn't the signs and wonders that brought about fear. Rather, it was a story of someone trying to, poorly as they did, imitate the name of Jesus. This is what caused folks to fear the power of Jesus. Was somebody trying to take control of it and manufacture it and how poorly that went for them. And then in verses 18 and 19, it says that also many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. This is another, be sure of it, amazing event in this story. This sort of mass group of people who are convicted of sin and they, they, they publicly display their confession and their repentance. They're bringing with them scrolls and books to this huge fire which give evidence to the fact that they hadn't fully bought into the Jesus thing. There were aspects of their life that they still allowed to sort of have a, a foothold. They were still playing around with magic. They were still playing around with these books and these scrolls. This was a, design, a, a display for them saying, we're all in. <laughs> I, I don't want to be that guy running around with my pants around my ankles, a bloody mess in the streets. No thanks. I'm all in. This is a public display of their loyalty to Jesus. And it was also costly to them. It, it, it came at a cost, 50,000 pieces of silver, which reminds us that genuine discipleship when we let King Jesus reign over every area of our life, until that happens, are we really genuinely walking with him? They had to let go of what they treasured to fully enjoy the blessing that Jesus had for them. This is a sign of true transformation. Maybe the greatest miracle of all, their hearts transformed as awesome as those other stories are, the handkerchiefs and the aprons, the inability of this group of seven dudes invoking the name of Jesus, that whole scene, what's most amazing about this story is that King Jesus has the ability to transform the human heart. Paul would later write to the church of Corinth, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, here's the deal, church. Jesus is still in the business of working miracles. He's still in the business of moving into town, pouring out his power, transforming that what was dead, bringing it back to life. He's still in the business of working miracles and the people in this room are evidence of that. If you're here today and your life has been transformed by the grace and power of Jesus, you are, make no mistake about it, a miracle. You're a miracle. So in closing, I wanna offer just sort of two things. What do we do with this? Two things. First, remember that Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of God's power. Jesus Christ 
is the ultimate manifestation of God's power. It is Christ who conquers sin and death in the grave, freeing us from the power of the evil one. It is Christ who conquers demons, freeing people from oppression. Christ alone heals people, freeing us from sickness. He forgives people, freeing us, his people, from guilt and shame and sin. Christ calls people, freeing us from being focused on ourselves. Christ loves us, freeing us from the futility of trying to earn favor with God. Christ freely gives it. Christ resists temptation, freeing us from the, our inclination to always choose our own way over God's. Christ comes back from the dead, freeing us from the sting of death. Christ gives us his spirit, freeing us from being motivated only by our own selfishness. Christ promises to return, freeing us from despair, that history is pointless and not going anywhere. Christ is the ultimate display of God's power and he freely gives it to us, every single one of us. Christ gives himself for us, and he is so for you if you belong to him. Don't forget that. Secondly, I think how does this passage impact our church? My prayer this week is that this passage would help us as a church continue to grow in becoming a praying church. That's what I've been praying for, that God would use this. If you look throughout history and you examine all the revivals that God has uniquely sort of come down and blessed and just transformed things for a unique period of time in a place, it's, it always starts with just a small group of people coming together saying, let's pray to see what only God can do. And going back to that question I asked earlier, can you imagine, can you dream what God might do? Whatever that dream that you have in your head is, that if the gospel were to go forth from this place and transform our community, our city, our neighborhood, our homes, our marriages, our families, our workplaces, if that actually happens, if that were actually to happen, it's gonna mean we have to tap into the power of God. And the way you tap into that power is you get on your knees and you cry out for it. Parkviews, let's be a praying church. Let's be a praying church. If this is true, if what we just read today and Acts 19 is true, how can we not? If he is this powerful and he is saying, this power is for you, we would be fools not to tap into it. Because the truth is we all need it, every single one of us. We all need it. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And um, Lord, just the reality that you are a God who is full of power. Lord, we, we acknowledge that there is opposition, that there is an evil one who hates what we're about. And we also recognize that he's a total loser. Lord, we thank you for your, the victory that we have and that we share in Christ. Lord, that you have demonstrated your great love for us and sending your son to die for us, that we can be united with you as a people, Lord. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing privilege. Lord, would you be, help us to be a people who continue to um, never forget ultimately what it costs for us to have access to that power, 
how much it costs you. Lord, and will we also be a people who access it regularly through prayer. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.